Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. And this is episode 200. I mean, to be honest, I thought I would have gotten here a bit quicker because I've been doing this thing for years, but we're here and thank you for sticking with me for 200 episodes. I really, really hope that this podcast has been helpful to you in some way and has helped influence your endo journey for the better. Um, I always love hearing from you guys and hearing your stories. So if this podcast has helped you, please let me know because it makes it um, all worthwhile because it can be a bit lonely on this side of the mic. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally, their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down 
And it also ensures that you have healthy, balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balance in plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. So this is the second edition of my special Endobelly IG Live series. And in this IG Live, I'm really focusing on SIBO specifically and the diagnosis and the treatment kind of troubleshooting tips and where it can go wrong with diagnosing and treatment and what to look out for and why you might get a negative test, even if you're actually positive. And if you are genuinely negative for SIBO, I also talk about other possible root causes behind your endobelly. So these are the questions that I'm answering today. What's the difference between chronic SIBO and one-off? And this is really important because many of us with endo are probably going to fall into the chronic. Um, And most people with SIBO fall into the chronic. So that's, that's an important one. Which types of bacteria cause SIBO? Do GPs have an awareness of SIBO? What could cause a negative test if you're sure you have SIBO? Do GI specialists on the NHS know know how to diagnose and treat SIBO? And what else could cause endobelly and bloating if it's not SIBO? So if you found this live helpful or you'd like to learn more or you're just sick of the endobelly and you'd like some guidance, I'm holding two free endobelly workshops this week. So my workshop is called Creating a Roadmap for Endobelly Healing and I'm holding it twice tomorrow, May 24th, 7pm British summertime and Thursday, the 26th 
7 p.m. British Summer Time. Don't worry if you can't attend live. Sign up and you'll get the recording the next day. And in this two-hour workshop, I'm going to show you how to overcome endobelly information overwhelm, how to identify your core endobelly challenges so that you can prioritize which ones are the most important to you and which ones are the most kind of debilitating and then work down the list so you're not overwhelmed trying to tackle everything all at once. I'll teach you the first, second and third line therapies for endobelly healing that I go through with all of my clients. And essentially those are just the first, second and third steps, the strategies for healing the endobelly. And then I'm going to empower you to set one to three goals and next steps so that you can actually create your own tailored endobelly healing roadmap and get started and take action immediately after the workshop. I mean, you might want to chill after the workshop, but you know, if you want to get going straight away, then it's all there for you. This workshop is really about sorting through the confusion around the endobelly so that you can begin managing it with confidence and clarity and you can stop feeling so overwhelmed and like endobelly and endometriosis is controlling you and your life rather than the other way around. So just pick the workshop that best fits your schedule. As I said, I'm holding two workshops, Tuesday, May 24th and Thursday, May 26th both of them at 7pm British summertime. And if you can't join live, sign up anyway, and you'll receive the recording. So the sign up is in the show notes. It's also the link. Uh, it's also linked in my Instagram bio and it's on the website. So lots of different ways to sign up. And I really hope to see some of you there. What's the difference between chronic SIBO and one-off SIBO? Oh, sorry, I'm going to recap. Uh, thank you, Laura. That's so kind. I am. Thank you. Um, as I was saying before, I got rudely cut off by Instagram. There are two types of SIBO in terms of chronic versus one-off. Chronic affects two-thirds of people with SIBO. So two-thirds of people with SIBO will be chronic. And then the other third are one-offs. They're called we kind of call them one and done. So they do their treatment and then they never need to treat again. They never relapse. The chronic half will relapse at some stage, and relapse usually occurs between two months to a year. I think that's correct. Now, when you treat SIBO and you get the all clear, there will be a phase which is three to six months post SIBO eradication called the prevention of relapse. This is essential. If the person that you're working with or the resource that you're using to treat SIBO doesn't talk about the prevention of relapse, that is a red flag. Alarm bells should be ringing. They need to be talking about the prevention of relapse. So the prevention of relapse is going to prolong the time between your relapse so you can spend as long as possible in remission. And so hopefully you can be one of those one-offs. So the prevention of relapse will include taking a prokinetic. So that stimulates the migrating motor complex to clean the small intestine overnight. It will involve some sort of SIBO diet and you can expand to tolerance as like quickly as possible. So it's not like you're on some super restrictive diet um, and meal spacing. So you're basically spacing your meals so that the migrating motor complex that cleans your small intestine overnight has, um, and between meals, it kicks in two hours after meals, has time to 
to actually clean the small intestine between meals. So those are your free essentials. And then there are other things as well, like body work, including like visceral manipulation, um, supporting stomach acid productions to support in back, uh, digestive enzymes, things like that. But those are your free essentials. So that has to be done. And hopefully it will prolong the time that you're in remission. Now, with the chronic cases, the reason why you're relapsing and you're becoming chronic is because there's a root cause that hasn't been solved. And often that root cause will be something like a previous history of food poisoning that's damaged the migrating motor complex. Um, it could be that you have um, adhesions that haven't been addressed that are affecting you, you know, um, from surgery or the endometriosis itself. There are so many things that could be causing the um, the relapsing. Um, in some cases, you know, it's like parasites or mould. Now, what I've done is I've actually recorded a podcast episode on the most common causes of relapse that I see in people with endometriosis and SIBO. So not just SIBO on its own. Um, I just want to raise this up because I feel like you're just... Sort of getting some sort of double connection. Um, there you go. So um, I've done an episode on that. It's quite recent, so you'll be able to find it if you just scroll back through my podcast episodes. Um, so we need to investigate the root cause and then see if that can be solved. So, for example, hypothyroidism, hypo, is a cause of SIBO. If you had undiagnosed hypothyroidism and then you went on the right medication there's a chance that if it was well controlled you could potentially move into the one and done so you could move into the non-chronic group um if there was a small bowel obstruction so you had um a some sort of um kink in your intestines from your surgery your adhesions from surgery and we were able to address those adhesions and resolve that small bowel obstruction kind of um get the the small bowel moving properly then you could potentially move into the non-chronic group but for some of us especially those with a history of um food poisoning uh Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is uh, common in our community, hypermobility, POTS, um, muscle activation syndrome, it can be a bit trickier to resolve that root cause. So for example, with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which I see a lot in my endo clients, um, it creates droopy bowels. They're kind of floppy. Imagine like a bouncy castle, um, yeah, a bouncy castle deflating. That's sort of what you're like intestines are doing they're like they're just very floppy and so the migrating motor complex can't work it can't clear through the small intestine properly there's nothing wrong with the migrating motor complex potentially it just can't clear through the small intestine because it's just too floppy so something like that you can't you can't really resolve that so it's about long-term management um and you can live well with chronic SIBO it's just about knowing it, knowing your beast and knowing how to tame it right um so then and the next question was what are the types of bacteria in 
SIBO. So there are so many types of bacteria. I'm just going to read you a couple of them. Some of them I can't pronounce for the life of me, so I'm not going to try. Um, but the important thing to know with SIBO is that it's normal bacteria. It's the bacteria in your large intestine, but it's in your small intestine. So it's it's called commensal. It's normal bacteria. So it's not um, the it's not like salmonella. It's not cholera. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, it's not those kind of bacteria. So I am going to read a couple of them. Um, lactobacillus, um, E. coli. Now that sounds like it's a bad bacteria. It's not. It's a normal bacteria, but it has the op- it's an opportunistic bacteria. So if E. coli gets out of control, there are types of normal E. coli. I do think there's a pathogenic E. coli that's just kind of straight up dangerous. But um, there are there are quite a number of strains of E. coli, and there are normal strains of E. coli in our large intestine. And when they get out of control, they can become pathogenic. So they can become um, illness causing, but it's also normal. So E. coli, Klebsiella, um, Proteus, uh, Streptococcus, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, just trying to see which ones would be more recognised, uh, Citrobacter, uh, Clostridium, Clostridium, I think I'm pronouncing it right, so, um, the ones that aren't SIBO are like, there's a t- certain type of strain of E. coli, 0157H7. Um, and then, you know, as I said, like salmonella, like the kind of common ones that you hear of with food poisoning, those are not um, the the things that are called, the bacteria that are causing SIBO. Uh, so in relation, how do you establish these root causes with clients, ultrasound, breath tests, stool tests, other? It really depends on the client and the symptoms they're presenting with so if uh if i suspected they were adhesions um and normally i would kind of get every client assessed for adhesions because it's so common then you can get a specific type of scan to that's not going to show up adhesions but it's going to show up small bowel obstructions not by the adhesions themselves but it's going to show if like the um small intestine is like kinked or looped or like whether it looks very narrow so we could um refer them for that type of scan um also get a physical examination from a visual manipulation therapist to feel for adhesions um obviously we could do some thyroid testing um stool testing yes you could do that for parasites if you suspected that if someone had like you know they got sick when they were traveling or they've done a lot of like um outside swimming like in kind of wild swimming um if they had achy joints if they had dizziness if they had um very soft skin very stretchy skin if they had a history of poor scar healing and excessive scar tissue um if they had palpitations racing heart then i would start to think mm, is ellis danlos syndrome involved here um if they bruised easily if they had achy joints hypermobility then i'd be thinking you know ellis danlos syndrome potentially pot potentially mcas if they were very allergic if they had a lot of histamine issues um so uh I'm just reading. Okay, 
I'm going to go through this pre-submitted questions and then I'm going to come back to your question if we have time. If not, submit it for another um, question. Um, but another live, sorry, it's evening. My brain is starting to switch off. Um, is a large fruit and rice diet going to make me worse with SIBO even though I react to all the things that may heal it? Um, rice you might be okay with, some fruit, what I would do is work with a practitioner to devise a diet that works for you specifically. Um, I don't know if you know that you have SIBO, but um, white rice might be okay if you don't react to it, but some people do with SIBO. Um, and then there are certain fruits that you could tolerate um, with SIBO, but it's it's not many. Um, so you would, I think for you, to avoid you being on some stupidly restricted diet where you're just barely eating anything, you're going to need to work with a practitioner who can devise a diet for you. Um, that's my quick answer to that, um, just in case I don't get to you later on. Um, okay, so uh, the next question was, let's bring it up. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. Do GPs have an awareness of SIBO and training in relation to SIBO? <sighs> the answer is not really. There might be some... Um... Okay, you were diagnosed last year with SIBO. Um, there might be some GPs who have gone out of their way to seek training in, in SIBO, but at the moment, SIBO is not very well recognised, um, especially in the UK. Um, they are more advanced in America and Australia. We are lacking. We're, we're behind in the UK. Um, so GPs are not that aware. Some of them will have an, will know what it is, but they won't necessarily know how to treat it or they might assume make assumptions of how to treat it but actually be not be up to date with the information about how to successfully treat it so in my experience a lot of GPs who do know will think one quarter of rifaximin will be enough and, and that's not um that's not accurate at the moment um the thing with SIBO is that it's like endo. It's not being talked about for very long. And actually, it was only really first, um, I think, first recognised in the 1960s in relation to some other conditions. So it was looked at as, oh, this condition could happen as a result of these conditions. Then in the 2000s, Dr. Mark Pimentel started doing a lot more research on seeing it as its own condition and looking at all of these types of scenarios that could cause it um, and really looked at it as sort of um, in the context of IBS that we see it in today. So, you know, right now we see 
um, 60 to 70% of cases of IBS are actually SIBO. So Dr. Mark Pimentel was leading that. So as a result, it's taken a long time. It's, it's very new. When it, If you're thinking about medical history, it's very new. And so GPs are not too versed in it. Some of them don't believe in it. Um, so it can be tricky to find a, a GP who, who knows and knows how to test for it. Um, so next question was, um, I did a test for SIBO a few years ago. Um, breathing into a tube, but it came back negative. I'm pretty sure I have it. Is this common? Do you know what's the best test? Thank you. Okay, so Lottie, if you are breathing directly into a tube with a straw, that is a bad test. <laughs> so there is a test that um, does that and is look, try and get a um, preview of the test instructions most of them will have that they have like a sample test instructions before you buy it look at that if it says that you're breathing directly into a test tube with a straw don't get that test if it is a test where you're breathing into a bag and you insert a test tube into the side of the bag via a needle as you're um, exhaling into the bag that is the test you want the best test is a three hour test with 10 test tubes the most effective solution so when you take this test you are drinking a solution um, before you do the test so you will breathe into a test tube once and then you will breathe to get your baseline and then you will breathe into and then you will drink the solution and breathe into the test tubes following that um, at 20 minute intervals. But the solution that you're drinking will either be glucose, lactulose or fructose. Um, the most reliable one at the moment is fructose, but it's not the most common. Um, it's, it's not, it's, sorry, it's not standardised. That is, that's new information. So, fructose is new um and that is being um led by dr i'm not sure how to pronounce his name or how to spell it so i think it's dr holorak maybe um but up until his most his sort of recent discoveries it's been lactulose so at the moment it's kind of for best to stick with lactulose um until we have more information, if you can afford to do lactulose and fructose, then that's going to give you the best kind of information. Glucose is the least reliable. So Lottie, maybe you did a glucose test. The reason why that can be unreliable is because glucose is absorbed very quickly in the small intestines. So it's absorbed in the first uh, three feet of the intestines. The small intestine can be like 22 feet, 30 feet long. So if your SIBO is further down the intestines, the glucose is going to miss it. So you can get false negative. That's that's like a leading cause of a false negative. Um, if you ate some carbohydrates in your prep diet, if you ate white rice, if you ate white bread, then that and you actually reacted to it. So they a lot of the standard tests say you can eat white rice or white bread, but the problem is a lot of people do react to that. And so what that can do is feed the bacteria and you don't get, uh, and so it creates gases 
whilst you're doing this prep diet. And then when you do the test, you already have high gas levels because that's what the test is measuring. And so when you do that baseline, that baseline is supposed to show almost no gas at all. Then you drink the solution and then the test is measuring how much is that solution feeding the bacteria? How much gas is being produced by that bacteria? Because that's what will happen. The bacteria will eat the sugar from the solution and it will ferment it and create gas. And that's how we measure whether SIBO is present. So we want that first breath reading to be, you know, almost completely negative so that we know, okay, everything else from that point onwards is SIBO. And so when you incorrectly prep, you're feeding the bacteria in your large intestine. And so you're feeding the bacteria in the small intestine um, and you can get this leftover gas by the time you do the test. And so what happens is that leftover gas can give you a false negative because the gas might be 20 parts per million already. And we're looking for a rise in the uh, small intestine. So we're looking for a rise for in the um, for hydrogen. This is getting quite complex if I don't have a diagram to show it. But we're looking for a rise of 20 or at getting over 20 parts per million um, by 120 minutes with hydrogen. If your gas levels are already 20 and they stay 20 or they dip down, that could look like a false negative. So if your um, baseline was high, then I would retest. If your baseline is high with methane, that's positive um, because that's very common with methane. Um, You could have CFO as well. So you, I said, Lottie, you said that you're pretty sure you have it. Um, so CFO can um, look a- identical to SIBO, but it's small intestine fungal overgrowth. And that's a different test. And actually, it's very difficult to test for at the moment. Um, you do need to have like a specialist work with you and it's it's kind of almost impossible to, to test for it right now. Um, so the other um, thing I wanted to raise, Lottie, is if you did a two-hour breath test or one-hour breath test, it's just not going to give you accurate results. So it might say negative when actually we need to see the full three hours to get, get the full picture. Um, the next question is, do gastro specialists in the health service know how to correctly diagnose and treat SIBO? So there are some, um, but not many. Most of them are private. Now, you know, granted, there might be some um, specialists who I don't know. I've done a lot of research um, and I've worked with a lot of clients at this point. And unfortunately, a lot of the doctors at present on the National Health Service um, aren't, they're using the diagnostic criteria on the NHS is different from the sort of world leading diagnostic criteria that um, in the UK we have um, what I would call out of date um I don't mean to offend anyone who works for the NHS, but from my training and and 
my training is based on leading SIBO specialists and leading research by Dr. Mark Pimentel, who's a leading researcher. Um, and my diagnostic criteria is based on the North American consensus. Um, and so the NHS diagnostic criteria is a little bit, it's, it's much, much stricter. It's, it's a bit behind. Um, and I was quite shocked. I can't quite remember what it is, but I saw a client came to me, show me her test results. And then she was like, they said this, these, this is negative. And I was like, I can't see under any circumstances how this could be negative under any circumstances. But it was because they didn't, I think from memory, they didn't test for methane. They don't test for methane unless under exceptional circumstances. And with the hydrogen, I think they only count it as a positive if the rise happens within the first 60 minutes or maybe even less. Anything outside of that, they don't count at all. Whereas a lot of tests, it's by 90 minutes. And in my training, we count it as positive within 120 minutes because we um, understand that many people with SIBO have slowed motility so that it can take a while for that solution to get through the gut. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's a very narrow range um, on the NHS. Now, if you go private, then there's quite a high chance that those doctors have done extra research. Maybe they've trained with some of the specialists that I've trained with and they have like a broader understanding of what could potentially be a positive. So um, the the test on the NHS, I can't, I've seen it once. Um, so I can't say like from memory exactly what it is, but I know it's much, much shorter. I think it's just an hour long. Um, so there's less test tubes. Um, and it might be glucose and not lactulose. I can't quite remember that bit. Um, and the diagnostic criteria is really narrow. Um, from the clients I've worked with, and like I said, there may be other NHS specialists out there who I've not met and who are doing wonderful, wonderful things. The clients that I've worked with and the NHS specialists that they've worked with, a lot of the doctors have just thought that my my client would get the all clear with just one round of rifaximin and when they haven't gotten better they're like baffled i've literally just had this happen again recently where um a client didn't get a negative test after one round of rifaximin which is one of the antibiotics for SIBO and they couldn't understand why so they've now referred her to a private doctor and to me it's like well yeah of course like SIBO treatment takes several rounds like a minimum a minimum you're looking at three rounds minimum so um it's at the moment I think it's up to the doctor to go away and do more research and look at what the what other specialists are doing across the world um and go to the conferences and you know do the courses and, and go to the different um, lectures. There are so many resources on SIBO now, but it's not infiltrated within the NHS at the moment. Um, and then question was, what other things could be causing the symptoms? 
um, if it's not SIBO. So I've got an episode on this. It's called... It's called um, endo. Uh, it's called ten root causes of bloating with endometriosis. Um, so I'm gonna like quick fire through this um, because you can listen to that episode in a lot more detail. Um, it is an old one, but I re-released it recently, so it's under it's part of the Endobillion IBS awareness series. So it's just a couple of weeks old. Um, so other things that could be causing this bloating or the symptoms could be adhesions from the endometriosis or the um, surgery because they can cause pockets of gas to build up and create bloating. Um, they could be causing constipation. Um, if you've got a particularly large endometrioma, um, obviously that could cause bloating and swelling. Um, you could get that with with good um, technology. You should be able to get that picked up on a scan. So you just need to get a, a specialist to check that, um, especially if it was a large one that was causing significant you know, swelling and bloating. Um, low stomach acid, low digestive enzymes, those could cause problems with bloating, gas, diarrhea, um, undigested food in your stores, constipation. Celiac disease could cause these symptoms and celiac disease is very common within the endometriosis community. Um, Candida, so yeast overgrowth in either the large intestine or the small intestine could cause the same symptoms. But um, I wouldn't say that that is like really common with the endo community i would just say it's common full stop with the entire population um gut dysbiosis um so bacterial imbalances in your large intestine now this is common within the endometriosis community um there is gut dysbiosis is is known to happen is has been shown in the research um so that could be what's affecting your bloating and your gut problems and I will say that most people with small intestine uh, bacterial overgrowth will also have some level of gut dysbiosis um, so they will need to do some healing of that as they go through the SIBO treatment and post-SIBO treatment um, fructose intolerance or certain carbohydrate intolerance and other intolerances um, not necessarily more common with endometriosis but just something to be aware of that could look like SIBO. Estrogen dominance, this would be particular, a sign of this would be if it's happening in your luteal phase. If the symptoms are happening in your luteal phase, this is a sign this is more to do with a hormonal imbalance. Um, if your symptoms are just happen happening around ovulation or your period or your luteal phase, that's a sign that it's to do with the swelling from the inflammation with your endometriosis um, and that it's hormonal as well. Um, I'm just going to take some water. Leaky gut, which is really common within our community because of the stress that our body is under um, and numerous other things which I've listed in that podcast episode. Um, stress itself um, basically being in flight or fight will turn off your digestion and as a result, lower stomach acid, damage the gut, um, lower digestive enzymes, cause leaky gut, cause bacterial imbalances that can lead to um, all of these kind of symptoms we've been discussing. Um, histamine intolerance, which I see a lot within this community. So histamine problems 
can cause diarrhea, can cause abdominal cramping, can cause bloating. Um, so those are some of those key causes that if SIBO isn't there. But the definitive way to rule out if SIBO is present is to have good tests. If you're really convinced it's SIBO, try and do a fructose test and a, and a lactulose test and work with a practitioner. And that practitioner needs to look at your tests and your history of symptoms, but also your, your medical history and your life history, what's happened to you that could th give them clues that, ah, this might be SIBO. Because testing is not just a science, it's an art. Um, and the SIBO testing is not perfect. So it, it needs someone who can interpret it properly. Um, so I hope this has been helpful. Um, if you want to learn more about these root causes that I've talked about today that aren't just SIBO, if you want to learn more about the endobelly in general and endometriosis and like how to begin healing the endometriosis belly, whether SIBO is present or not, um, then I am holding my Creating a Roadmap to Endobelly Healing free workshop tomorrow and Thursday night at 7pm British Summertime. You don't have to be um, live to watch it. You just need to be signed up. If you sign up, then you'll get the recording the next day. Um, the link to that is in my bio. Um, if you're listening to this as a podcast episode, it's in the show notes. Um, so this is going to help you to basically create a step-by-step -step strategy for healing your endobelly symptoms, um, whether that's um, bloating, whether it's diarrhea, whether it's constipation, um, any of those IBS symptoms, any of that bloating, that swelling, this workshop is going to help you to create your strategy that's tailored to you to help you heal those symptoms. Um, do I take those with MCAS and POTS? Yes, I do. Um, most of my clients have those um, at the moment. Um, I don't specialise in those two conditions, but I do take people with those conditions and I have knowledge and awareness of how they interact with SIBO and endo. Um, and I have different resources and um, people that I can further like refer you on to to support your case um, so yeah I do um, so I hope that's been helpful and um, yeah I hope this live um, serves you and I hope to see some of you guys in the uh, live workshops this week bye everyone thank you so much for listening if you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. 
This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Thank you.